Welcome to How Optometric Education Needs to Change, a podcast from Review of Optometric Business. I'm Roger Mummert, Content Director. In this podcast, we explore the state of continuing education in optometry. Namely, has the common format of optometric CE grown out of date? Does the traditional church and state separation of commercial and clinical interests serve the evolving needs of optometrists who practice at a wider scope and with greater complexity than in years past? Is the one-hour lecture the best format for imparting vital, actionable information to apply in clinic and practice? Does CE embrace the coordinated care models involving other providers and the many urgent care centers that are changing patient access to care across the country? And are the business management skills that an OD needs to survive and flourish integrated with clinical education? We sat down recently with two thought leaders in optometry who are members of the Intrepid Eye Society, a group of progressive ODs who are debating these very timely issues. Dr. Whitney Hauser, who practices in Memphis, Tennessee, and Dr. Mark Schaefer, who practices in Birmingham, Alabama, and who comes from a large family of optometrists. And now, the review of Optometric Business Podcast, How Optometric Education Needs to Change. We're here today with Whitney and Mark, and we appreciate you coming to talk to us. Education has changed. Education has changed a lot over the time. Whitney, how would you view the changes? You're right. Everything's always evolving. Education kind of sometimes leads that evolution. Um, when we talk about education, we look at it from a lot of different perspectives. We have the academic optometric education, which I take a part in. But then, as Mark and I both do, we you know educate our patients and we also uh, educate our colleagues in terms of uh, COPE-approved CEs. So you know, there's been so much change over the last several years, bringing in so much more new technology, new drugs have come available, then how do we present that in the clinical setting as well as in an educational setting? So Mark, when you're dealing with a patient and you're going to prescribe a medication for the patient, you cannot be agnostic to all the medications that are out there. You're going to choose the one that you think is going to be best for this patient in this situation. So how do we communicate that to a practitioner in education? Well, that's a great question. I think that when we are talking to our patients, we have to sit from the perspective of evidence-based medicine. I think that that is always the gold standard when we talk about what we're treating our patients with. So when we have a patient that has condition X, we have to use the data that has peer-reviewed evidence-based medicine that allows us to prescribe that medication that will treat that disease. When we're talking to our colleagues, we do have to still use that evidence-based medicine and peer-reviewed science in order for us to have that conversation, but then we do have that clinical pearls of how do we involve this into our day-to-day -day practice? So what are the economics of it? How do we deal with pharmacy kickbacks? How do we deal with patient compliance factors? So when we have those, that's when the clinical pearls come in, but you have to start from the very foundation of there has to be proven clinical evidence that this medicine will work and will treat these diseases. I know, Whitney, back in, in, in education that you and I have previously been to, mm -hmm. people would sit there and talk to us for 55 minutes to get our COPE approval. Mm -hmm. Is that really the best way to do it in today's world? To me, live in the audience, is that what you mean? Or time-wise. Is time it better to do shorter chunks and multiples of those? Right. You know, as you asked about evolution before, education comes from so many different places, and we want it to be good quality education. As Mark referenced 
uh, evidence-based medicine equally, we want to have good quality education. Yes. So we have to be mindful of our sources, just like you know in politics and what how you may get your news sources. We want our education to be vetted. Uh, in terms of time, you're right, it's hard to sit there sometimes. I'm sitting in the audience just like everyone else, and it's hard sometimes to stay focused. We're in a real bite-sized uh, civilization now. Yes, we are. We're looking at bullet points. We're not looking at volumes of information. And I think sometimes maybe shorter snippets are a great way to look at it. And we can sometimes address those online in terms of video content. So yes, I think there's going to be changes that we see there. but. It still needs to be valuable, vetted information. So you're suggesting the glossy ads aren't always true? Uh, yeah, they're not always true sometimes, <laughs> but you have to be able to discern what's going to yes. be the truth of the matter versus what's salesmanship. I think that's important, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mark, when you uh, look at the education that you find to be very helpful, what, 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 give me some insights into that. Yeah, so the education that's helpful for me is something that I can take back and practice immediately. It's something that doesn't require a whole lot for me to sit down, chew, and bring back to the patient or bring back to my clinic and then go through how am I supposed to make this work. The best things for me are things that I can use for patients tomorrow um, whenever I see patients next. That's what I want my education in order to help me be a better doctor are changes that I can make very easily, very seamlessly that don't require you know, taking out loans and going through P&L statements in order to make things work. Um, and that is the best education also, shorter case-based um, presentations tend to be better as well because that's how we deal with our patients. They're not just walking in with a textbook ICD-10 on their forehead <laughs> and then we get to treat them, although we would like for our patients to do that sometimes. It would just save us a lot of time and energy. But in the case-based, it gives us the opportunities to deal with real-life examples and real-world clinical applications of diagnosing and treating ocular diseases. So, Whitney, when you think about the education we give our students coming through through our colleges mm -hmm. and universities, um, we really make them excellent clinicians. Mm -hmm. Could we improve our business side of the education? Absolutely. You're hitting something near and dear to my heart. Um, <clears throat> I have a saying, or I don't know that's a saying, but a phrase that I say pretty regularly, which is we graduate great doctors and sometimes poor businessmen and women. You know, there's only so much you can cram into a day when you're trying to educate and we're trying to get our patients, or our students rather, prepared for board examinations and even just that next exam. But when they leave, they have to, at the end of the day, at the end of their you know, time with us, be able to go into practice. And whether they're their own you know, contract employee type relationship, they're in business for themselves, they're entering as an associate, they've got to be able to read those contracts and understand, as Mark was saying about P&Ls, you've got to understand the business behind it. And the business behind optometry and really all of medicine has evolved so much over the last several years. It's not just about you know, running a business in your office. It's about your brand and the appearance of that brand to the general public through social media, through your website. And there's so many different things that we need to really assess and, and prepare our students for that they wouldn't otherwise be able to, to know how to field. I mean, how do you manage your Yelp reviews? You know, things like that that you think, gosh, you know, all that's being put out there about, you know, what kind of doctor I am and how do you manage it? Mark, I would suggest that uh, when we were in school learning our different diagnoses for different diseases and treatment uh, protocols, that um, that was all academic, but once we hit the clinic and we actually saw a patient, that's when we really learned it. I would imagine practice management is sort of the same way, that you know we talk about it in school and the, 
and when we talk about a P&L statement, we talk about balance sheets. But when they get out in business mm-hmm. and they actually have to look at their own P&L statement and their own balance sheet, that it makes a huge difference. Oh, absolutely. And we live, unfortunately, we live in a world of finite resources. So we have to live and die by those numbers that we see um, in our day-to-day practice. And that's something that, you know, just like managing your own patient flow as seeing doctors um, or seeing patients, when we're first-year optometrists out into the world, we're definitely going to evolve in how we do our flow of examination, examining a patient. I mean, I know student eye exams are probably two to three hours still at this time. (laughs) Um, And you get better as time goes on. And the same is true for anything else. So when you live and breathe that every day going in and saying, here's what my patient looks like, my patient looks like, here's how we did the day before, here's all of the numbers and metrics that we look at. The only downside to this is there's so much data now that we may actually end up with paralysis by analysis where you just get overloaded with all of that information. So how do we pick the important things for us to be focused on so that we can then get a good education and good day-to-day business acumen so that we can get better at that? And then once we get better, diving down into those much more in-depth things. So, Wendy, one of my favorite phrases is uh, a, an excellent doctor who's run his practice into the ground and out of business mm-hmm. isn't providing care to anybody. Right. So if we want our excellent doctors to provide excellent care ongoing, there really needs to be a good business understanding as well, doesn't there? There does. There does. You know, you can be a great doctor, as I mentioned, and not a great businessman. And, you know, you wind up, as you said, sort of running your business into the ground and limiting yourself. But there are so many resources out there, and I think that anyone who has a true interest in building their business can do it, uh, and just reaching out to the right people can make a big difference. That's good. Mark, what are some of the resources you reach out to? Well, luckily, I you know grew up in an optometry family, so my mentor was you know a phone call away under an ICE number. You know, like yeah. he was in an in case of emergency, and that happens in the business world too. You still have emergency numbers, um, but going to these conferences and going to live meetings, you get a lot of informal practice management education, as long as as well as some of those CE courses that do provide practice management. So you get to see it from a lot of different perspectives and not just I'm going to CE to learn about X disease, even though we need to do that as well, because if we're not learning about new diseases, then we're not doing our best service to our patients. But we still need to be able to take care of our employees and our staff and our communities as well. And you can't do that unless your business is doing well. So you're suggesting some of those hallway meetings are just as valuable as the actual formal lectures. I think sometimes they're more valuable. Yes. Um, you know, what happens in those five-minute meetings between conferences or between CEs are some of the best conversations that you'll have, and that's the real benefit to these live meetings. I think that you'll never get away from those kinds of interactions and those kinds of, you know, you rub elbows with somebody or bump into someone or an introduction of a friend of a friend lends you with this absolute pearl of a mentor or great relationship that you end up 30 plus years later still having the benefit of, oh, we met at a Vision Expo one year. So Whitney, if I was going to say, give me one pearl, one gem Mm -hmm. that is really important that you found in life in the practice of optometry, what would that be? Well, one of my passions, I don't know if it's my one pearl to take away from my entire practice over the last 20 years because that might be too hard to come by. 
one of the things that I've really come away and have as a passion point is as we're acquiring new equipment, you know, from a practice yes. management perspective, everyone wants to know what do I buy next? Right. And a lot of times what happens is, particularly in the advanced care space, is we see people want to buy equipment, but then as they bring it on, they don't know how to onboard it effectively yes. into their practice. They don't know how to implement it. They don't know how to present it to patients, to their staff. and their conversion rate to getting patient acceptance with that equipment tends to be lower because of that. And it's just because like that businessman and businesswoman, you know, deficiency that we sometimes have, it's that presentation tends to be deficient. So the the equipment winds up, you know, gathering dust in the corner right. somewhere and the physician wants to blame the equipment for its lack of productivity. So one of my passion points is making sure as you're buying something, not only do you really evaluate the value of that particular piece in your practice, but also what are you going to do? How are you going to utilize it? And what's your buy-in as an individual practice going to be for that piece of equipment? That's great because you got to put that piece of equipment in a flow of your practice. Right, right. And if it doesn't fit the flow correctly, it may, it may give you great results, right. but it messes up the flow of your office. It's like I blame my treadmill because I don't run on it. <laughs> you know. And how many people use treadmills to hang clothes yeah, on? Yeah, I know. I've been there. Everything but. <laughs> right. Mark, what's your, your pearl, your suggestion, your idea that, uh, that you want to share with people? I think it's using your resources. I think that our profession is a profession that generally lifts everyone up with it. We're not a yeah. cutthroat. We're not a if you are successful, then I can't be successful type of industry. We are a very collaborative industry. And I think that using your partners, whether it's your colleagues, whether it's industry partners with new technology, whether it's across the aisle, um, all across the board and all across the United States, using that forum that we have and that you know, collegial environment in order for us to better our profession. Oh, I completely agree. At least once a year, I sit down and I create my network map. I put down there specifically who are all the people that I network with who really help me to be better at what I'm doing and making sure that I maintain those relationships. That's, I, I think that's essential in any practitioner. Yeah. And the other thing that I think that we do really well is we always put our patients first. Yes. I think that that is paramount to success in anything. So you can be a great business person, but if you don't put your patients first, mm -hmm. you're not going to have people coming into your office. So right. when we have patients first, and I think that when you align with partners that also believe in that, yes. then everybody gets to win between the practice of optometry, the general public, and then our industry partners as well. Right. And patients are very intuitive. They'll pick up very quickly right. if that's not your direction. Mm -hmm. Right. That's got to be foundational. I mean, yeah. that's why we went into the you know, practice of optometry, exactly. the practice of medical eye care. It's always to take care of the patients first. I thought it was genetic, but... Right. Yours is. But <laughs> well, yeah, in your case... The rest it... <laughs> of us elected. You were born into it. So in the practice of optometry... We have evolved from dealing with pathological care, which is what the whole medical world dealt with for a long time, and it's evolved now into wellness care. Mm -hmm. um, as we think about wellness care, one of the things that stands out to me is when you look at uh, um, history, um, you look at examination, you look at medical decision-making, also in those definitions of codes is coordination of care. And I don't know that we focus on that well enough inside our schools and colleges of optometry. Whitney, have you seen any, any places where we could do better? Right. Well, there are always opportunities to improve. You know, 
We utilize case managers who relay our referrals to not only ophthalmology, which is sort of predictable, but also to other specialties like rheumatology, internal medicine, and so forth. Now, generally in optometry, unfortunately, we often think of that as a unidirectional flow of our patients out to some other specialty. But we also do find that we get referrals in right. for you know concussion therapy and vision therapy. I get lots of referrals to our dry clinic from different subspecialties like rheumatology and ophthalmology back to us. So it's definitely a bi-directional flow at this point, which makes it unique. In terms of education, I think there's a movement towards an interprofessional education, looking at how we can interact with other physicians and other care providers like physician's assistants. And I think there's a great advantage to, as our students are young and developing how they're going to be practicing, that they understand how they interact with other medical professions. With that interaction with other medical professions, Mark, that's something that we do every single day in the practice. And it's amazing how there's no formal courses, there's no formal education. Even at a, at a CE event like, like this, there's no, there are no people setting up there saying, here's how you really do it in the real world every day. What, what would you do different to help people to understand how yeah. to do that? I think that it all starts with our education system and it starts with CE of starting a program that is, here's how to communicate yeah. X, Y, or Z, or here's how to go out and help refer patients back to yourself. Um, you know, there's urgent cares popping up all over the United States and when they get a red irritated eye, a lot of times they don't treat it properly and then we ended up seeing them a few days later. We have a uh, urgent care that's literally in our parking lot that they know if they have any sort of doubts, they can just send them downstream. It's literally down a hill to see us. So we know that we have the opportunity to take over or at least manage those patients much better than they can. And then we have that, again, bi-directional flow that Whitney was talking about coming into the practice. But then when we have issues where we need blood work or an urgent care or somebody doesn't have their primary right. care set up, we have that ability to refer back. And I think that that is a, again, part of this whole wellness and integrated healthcare model that we need to be living a part of. It's, it's interesting to me that patients today want care where they want care, and it's not always in our offices. It's when they're at the CVS. It's when they're at the, the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, we're seeing these little urgent care centers, these little uh, dock-in-a-box popping up in those centers. And rather than fear them, mm -hmm. shouldn't we go communicate with them and share, just as Mark was talking about, uh, here's where we can help. Right. And, and establish that bi-directional relationship. You're exactly right. I mean, there, you can fear it, but it's coming or it's here. Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, you need to embrace it and be welcoming of certain opportunities uh, and just get that communication going. I think really that's the most important thing. And as Mark said, I mean, just opening up the conversation allows for a personal relationship. You fear people you don't know. Yes. And then you put a personal side to it. It's not just a doc in the box. It's, you know, it's Dr. So-and-so that you now know, and it's a personal person to you, then it's different. And Mark, when you start thinking about all the, the, the referrals we have and the consultations we send out to other doctors, that do we really understand exactly what they want from us? Do they know, do we know what information we should be sending to them? So a lot of times we don't, and a lot of times it's based off of when you have that relationship, you send a letter and they're like, they will call your office back and say, oh, we didn't need all of this information, we just need X, Y, or Z. So a lot of it is trial and error with some of your, you know, inner 
referrals that you may have. But it all starts with that letter. I would rather send more information that they need than have less information. So um, the power of that letter that we send out to fax over for our records has infinite value beyond just that piece of paper that's being sent. That is an open line of communication that then opens the door um, for patients to know and doctors to know that hey, this optometrist really understands what's going on and is a part of this team. It's not just, oh, my eyes are separate from what's going on with my body. And I think there's nothing worse, honestly, than sending no information. Just send, go to this doctor. Yeah, you know, that's And terrible. a referral over. It's, it's terrible for everyone. It reflects poorly on us as a profession. The doctor who's getting the referral may struggle with why is the patient there, and then naturally the patient's sort of caught in the middle with, well, they told me to come over, and I just think it sort of greases the wheels for the, the relationship. I know in my own practice career, I learned two things very quickly. One, in the first paragraph, tell the doctor why the patient's sitting in their chair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you can put all the data after that. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was, send a letter to the patient as well as to the doctor to make sure the patient takes the letter with them. Because mm-hmm. how many times has the patient shown up in the doctor's office and the doctor goes, well, we never got a letter. Mm-hmm. Here's the letter Dr. Wright had mm-hmm. that he sent to me, the same one he sent to you. So it, it solves some of those issues. And I think if we taught our, our optometry students how to do this better, and as a profession we, we sort of got together and shared information and figured out how can we truly interact with other professions in a higher quality, higher level way, the end result is always better for the patient. All right, and I think we're seeing that. I think there is a priority shift in education towards that. I think yeah. that we all recognize some of our shortcomings yeah. and are really trying to address those. I see that across the country, absolutely. And the other thing we can do is <clears throat> utilize a lot of these EHR systems have these programs mm-hmm. already built in. Yes. So it's already a feature to fax out a, a letter. Report. So mm-hmm. it, you don't have to do a let me go through, rewrite <clears throat> everything to the case and then go forward. Absolutely. I am so about having... Some of the th- things that we do routinely just automatize, so mm-hmm. it just becomes so much easier for us to do. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.